Well, good morning. It's, it's great to be here uh, with you today to worship the Lord. Um, please turn to Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 13 through 19, uh, for the reading of God's Word. Again, uh, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for what it teaches us about you and what pleases you and what you have done and what you will do. And God, we're also thankful for what it reveals about us and our great need and dependence upon you. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts so that um, both our hearts and our minds would understand Uh, what you're saying in this passage today. Uh, Bless the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Tony mentioned, uh, my family and I are serving in Nagoya, Japan, Japan's third largest city on the Mission to the World church planning team. And when my wife and I were in language school, uh, there was a high school girl from one of our supporting churches in New Jersey who was part Japanese who was supposed to come and spend a week with us on our first trip to Japan. So prior to her coming, a friend from our Japanese church, Etsuko, found out we were hosting this girl on our first trip to Japan and offered to help us host. When Etsuko asked in Japanese, how old is your friend? I responded, Nanajusai. I should have said Junanasai, 17, but I didn't. I said Junanasai, 70 years old. <laughs> so when Etsuko got together with her Japanese friends and started brainstorming on how they could entertain this 70-year-old lady uh, from America, they made a list of plans and then originally, and then scratched off some of the original plans because they thought later, maybe that's too many stairs for an older lady. And so on the day when I brought Lydia over to Etsuko's house for a day of fun and cultural exploration, uh, you can imagine the surprise on everyone's face when Soren and I walked through the door with Lydia. Etsuko politely greeted Lydia and then asked how old she was. When Lydia said 17, the room erupted with laughter. Ben, you said Nanajusai, 70, not Junanasai, 17. We thought she was an older lady. 
this was one of the many mistakes I've made in Japan. One of our teammates one day was contacted by a Japanese man who was a Christian and had been talking to his mom about Jesus, who was not a Christian, but had become interested in Christianity through the testimony of her son. This man asked one of our teammates if she could pick up his elderly mother at the train station and take her to church. Of course, our teammate agreed. But on the Sunday, the elderly lady arrived on the train to our city. She was left waiting and had to eventually return on the train by herself because her ride never showed up. You see, our teammate, who was a mom and busily being pulled in many directions, serving on a new church plant, completely forgot about her. That's a big mistake. Especially in Japan, that's a big mistake. You don't do things like that in Japan, and it can be highly offensive. Of course, our teammate felt terrible and apologized profusely both to the son and the mother. And they were gracious, and the next week, another meeting was set up, and the elderly lady showed up again, ready to try going to church. But again, our teammate forgot. Terrible, right? By this time, you're probably wondering why our church supports Ben and his blundering teammates. (laughs) Well, here's the point. We are pleased to be working with a great team of competent and very hardworking missionaries. And by God's grace, our team has accomplished a lot. But we are not free from error, and we make mistakes. Thankfully, the fate of our mission does not depend on our own merit and competencies. We labor and sacrifice, but if the church depended strictly on our performance, we'd be in trouble. What a waste it would all be. Our work would certainly come crashing down when it it was affected by our errors and certainly affected by our sin. But we have confidence because we're invested in a mission that does not depend on us ultimately. We depend that when some meet Jesus Christ for the first time, it will be an encounter that they've never had before. We depend on the providence of God and the Holy Spirit, and we depend uh, to change people's lives. And we depend on Christ to build his church when, where, and how he wishes. Missions work is hard in Japan, and though we strive to be faithful and diligent, we are nevertheless utterly dependent for God to do his work in spite of ourselves. The great thing is that this is the pattern we see in Scripture. God takes common men and, in spite of their weaknesses, uses them to build his church. Peter is a central figure in our passage today. And as you know, Peter was bold, was in Jesus' inner circle of friends, and was used in mighty ways by God to build his church, including preaching with boldness at Pentecost, where some 3,000 souls were added to the church in one day. But Peter was also a man who made spectacular mistakes. Remember, Peter denied Christ three times before his crucifixion. Peter initially wanted Christianity without the cross and tried to persuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem. It's recorded in Galatians 2 that Paul had to rebuke Peter because he acted cowardly in being afraid of eating with Gentiles when those of the circumcision party were watching. Peter was rightly revered in the early church, 
He was a man of God, was bold, had great faith, and was used by the Lord in mighty ways. But nevertheless, if the church had to depend on Peter, it would have failed. It would have been a disaster. But thanks be to God, his work is not dependent on us, but is dependent on our Savior. In fact, if we will not participate in his plans, he will get his work done another way. If we are willing to participate, we will be used in wonderful ways in spite of our many weaknesses. Now, in case you're wondering about the elderly lady at the train station, the third time our teammate, uh, by the way, who is a great teammate and has been used in great ways, um, did eventually, uh, did remember, and eventually, uh, the Japanese mother even became a Christian. Am I language blunder? Well, God used that too. Because the Japanese lady thought that our friend was 70, they planned a nice, calm dinner party for her. And and a byproduct of that was that the host of the party I met for the first time that night started coming to church and later was even going through baptism classes when we returned to America. Thankfully, Christ is Lord of the Harvest. The success of the kingdom of heaven is not ultimately dependent on us. So what is it dependent on? Let's take a closer look at our passage and see three three means God uses to make the kingdom of heaven unstoppable. The first means that we see in this passage um, that God uses to make his kingdom of heaven unstoppable is the uniqueness of Christ, both in person and his message. This passage is one of the first time that Jesus talks about the church, per se. And so it is fitting that before he speaks about the church, that he gets straight to the issue of who he is. For if the church doesn't clearly understand who Jesus is, not only will it never get its mission right, but it won't even be a true church. In today's passage, Jesus starts by asking the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples reply that there are various answers. Some think he is the return of a specific prophet, like John the Baptist, Jeremiah, or Elijah. Some think he is a prophet in general. Notice the people here have reached no verdict on who they think he is. They are either not sure or are divided. But they have not made a clear evaluation and decision on who he is. And so it is today. Many people never reach a clear verdict in their minds of who Jesus Christ is. After this initial question to his disciples, Jesus then asked them, But who do you say that I am? There's never been a more important question put to humanity. Who do you say that I am? There's been quite a stir created over Jesus. People flocking to Jesus with their problems. People taking the roofs off of other people's buildings just so their friend could be seen by Jesus. All kinds of people seeking after him. Enormous crowds gathering to hear him speak. When people heard Jesus talk, they marveled. Not only because here was a carpenter's son, an uneducated man, they thought, teaching in a way that far exceeded his education. But also, he was teaching with a boldness and authority 
that they had never heard before, and in ways that one in his day would not have dared talked. He was compassionate, loving, bold, a friend of sinners, just, and brilliant. And then there were the miracles. There were miracles of compassion like the healing of the lame and the blind that surely would have called to mind the prophecies about the coming Messiah. And then there were the miracles like the calming of the sea that were so powerful that it left the disciples afraid and wondering, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who do you say Jesus is? It's important that you have a clear understanding to this ultimate question. Jesus Christ is hands down by far the most important history, the most important person in the history of mankind. And so it makes sense to really give careful consideration to this ever important historical figure. No one else has had the kind of impact that he has brought to the world. Not only is he by far the most important historical figure in the history of the world, but he is completely unique amongst even philosophers and religious figures. Augustine of Hippo, born in the 4th century, was a learned man studying with the best teachers and reading the greatest writings of civilization, and later he would in fact write the world's first autobiography. But reflecting on his coming to Christ, he writes... I've read in Plato and Cicero, sayings wise and beautiful, but never in either. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Christ's invitation unto himself is unique. Nobody beckons humanity to themselves as the answer to their problem, like Jesus. Other religions point to someone or something else, but Jesus doesn't point in some other direction but welcomes us into his own arms as a solution. Not so with Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Zoroaster, or Joseph Smith, or others who point to a philosophy or a deity. Jesus' invitation is unique because he is saying he is the answer to your problems, for he is God himself. Jesus is exactly the type of person who you would want to trust with your life, Jesus taught the world how to forgive their enemies and have compassion on the poor and oppressed. And if you're for human rights, which I trust all of you are, uh, you can thank Jesus and his followers because that's historically where human rights come from. The Christian faith is unique. Both the person of Christ is unique and the message of grace he extends is unique. Because Jesus paid for all of our sins on the cross, we have a faith based on grace that is completely unique to any other religion. As you know, this is Reformation Sunday. 503 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the doors of the Wittenberg Church, beginning what would be known as the Protestant Reformation, one of the great movements in the history of the world. The Protestant Reformation brought about many great things. But the thing I love most about the Reformation is the clarity it brought to the gospel. Pre-conversion, while Martin Luther was preparing to become a priest at the Black Cloister, the Augustinian Monastery in Erfurt, Germany, 
he would meet with his confessor, Johann von Staupitz, on a regular basis to confess his sins. Luther, who was on the brink of, a, of starting a promising career in law before he abruptly joined the monastery, was very mindful of God's laws and demands. His times of confession were thorough, as Luther would strain to meticulously confess all of his sins. No doubt taxing to hear, no doubt, no doubt taxing to hear for his confessor. On one such occasion, his confessor said, Martin, just love God. To which Martin turned and replied, Love God? I hate him. You see, if you don't understand the grace of God, you cannot love him. You will either try to lower the bar on the standard that God has for holiness to be able to have a relationship with him and thus not really love him in practice, which is what a lot of people try to do, or you will try to keep the bar high as is found in the scriptures, but be frustrated and resent God for his demand for complete holiness that you cannot keep. We need an alien righteousness. A righteousness not of our own. And that's exactly what Luther came to realize. As Luther read through Romans, he discovered that, that in fact, we are not justified by our works, but justified by grace through faith. When Luther came to grips with that truth, he reports, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And I extolled my sweetest word, that is righteousness, with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Justification through faith was good news to Luther, not only changing Luther himself, but also millions of souls. One of the things I love about, the, about Bible studies with college students in Japan who've never opened up the scriptures before is that you get to see afresh just how amazing the Bible truly is. And it, let me tell you, it is quite a privilege to see students begin to understand the gospel for the first time in your living room and to have a front row seat for this encounter. One of the last studies we did this past summer was on Luke 15, what is traditionally called the parable of the prodigal son. And this story immediately resonated with one of our students and at one point, she said, I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like Buddhism is like the older brother. It's all about works and trying to be good enough. But I don't think God wants us to come to him like that. And then she went on to say how she thought, agreeing with the passage we were studying, that God welcomes us like a father because of his love and grace. Without the clarity of the gospel, Christianity becomes just another religion where people have to tirelessly work to try to earn God's favor. But since Jesus tells us to put our trust in him as he went to the cross to pay what we could not pay, we have a faith that is wonderfully unique. We have a faith based on grace. Justification by, by grace through faith is a beautiful thing. And it is just as powerful today as it was in the 16th century or as in the 1st century. 
This past February, we had a group of eight Japanese students from our ministry in Japan fly over and visit us. We started the trip in Kansas City, spent 10 days at a partnering church in Columbia, Missouri, and then concluded our trip at a different um, partnering church in New York City just weeks before COVID hit. In Columbia, we did a Bible study with their college pastor, and on the day we talked about grace, he asked the students, what kind of things do you think can get you into heaven? And the Japanese students, the ones who hadn't been studying the Bible with us yet, filled up the whiteboard with good things like being honest and helping the poor that they thought might get you into heaven. When the college pastor put a big X through these good deeds, their mouths hit the floor. He explained that all these that although these were all good things to do, nothing anyone can do can contribute to their salvation. It is a complete work of grace. Our salvation was paid for alone by the precious blood of Christ on the cross. Grace can be hard for Japanese to understand, but when they do, it's certainly good news. Jesus is the most important person who ever lived. He is unique amongst religious figures, both in terms of person and message. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? If you haven't already, you need to be sure that you've reached a verdict. In verse 16, Peter answers the question with, you are the Christ, son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus tells Peter that it wasn't because of his flesh and bone that he understood who Jesus was, but that it was revealed to him by God the Father. It's just like in, it's just like Lydia in Acts 16, where it's recorded, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And later she believed and was baptized. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sin and unable to respond to him in faith, we cannot see Jesus for who he is by ourselves. We need God to reveal it to us. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John's gospel, unless one is born again, he could not see the kingdom of God. Japan is a hard place for the gospel. Some have referred to it as a missionary graveyard because so many people have been discouraged and gone home. Even entire mission agencies have pulled out of Japan because they thought it was too hard. When we officially became MTW missionaries in Atlanta at the agency headquarters, um, That evening, we also went to go visit my old host family from Korea who had recently moved to Atlanta. When I told my Korean host dad, who had considerable business experience in Japan and knew the culture well, that we were becoming missionaries to Japan, he said to me, Ben, the Japanese will not become Christians. We've gone all in as long-term missionaries. And in a sense, I feel completely helpless to have any spiritual breakthroughs. 
But that's how I should feel, right? At least in a sense. I should feel like I am powerless in my own flesh. But God can do what he wants. And what he wants is to build his church. And in Japan, he's doing just that. With a seminary in our city, Christ Bible Institute first started years, um, when it first started, it was held on the second floor of our church, Nishin Christo Kyokai, or Nishin Christ Church. During that time, there was a Korean seminary professor who came to teach short term. And as he was returning, nearing his date to return home, he became convicted that though he was teaching classes at a seminary daily, he hadn't really tried to reach out to any non-Christians with the gospel. And so one day, during his last week in Japan, he decided that he would walk up on campus at the university a block away from our church so he could share the gospel with students. On that day, he met a guy named Kaji and shared the gospel with him. Kaji believed. Right then and there, believed. It's simply incredible. Kaji is now a dear friend of mine and a co-worker. And I asked him one time about the experience. And he said, this guy shared with me. And when I looked in his eyes, I could tell he was telling me the truth. Spirit does what he wants. Recently, I was in a Zoom prayer meeting with a Japanese lady who several years ago went to an African-American gospel concert in Japan by a short-term team from Alabama that was being hosted by long-term missionaries. And though this Japanese lady had zero experience with any church, this Japanese lady heard the gospel and God opened her heart to believe it that very night. Again, this isn't normal in Japan. Japan is a hard place, and usually it takes years of Bible study and faithful Christian witness for one to become a Christian. My wife has a friend in Japan who was baptized a couple years ago, and it was more of like a 15-year process from when she first heard the gospel in college to when she finally became a Christian. I heard recently of a Japanese man who it took 28 years of hearing the gospel before he finally received it. It's often a slow process for Japanese persons to become a Christian. But God can do what he wants, and he can move as quick as he likes. One of my friends at our church in Japan is a doctor He did his residency in Philadelphia before he moved his family from Japan to the States. He went a few weeks ahead of time to find a place to live. Uh, But before he went, he got connected to a Korean pastor in the area who had a heart for the Japanese and said that any Japanese moving to the area that needed a place to stay could stay with his family for a while. And so my friend Kojima-sensei, Uh, went over there, took him up on the offer, and stayed with his Korean-American family upon moving to America while he looked for a, a house. And as it happened, on the first night during the short term, the short time he stayed with his Korean-American family, they had another guest. And our friend found this guy 
to be a most interesting guy. You see, this other guest had been involved with the Yakuza, or the Japanese Mafia, and had become a Christian, and is now probably Japan's best-known evangelist. The night our friend spent with this Japanese Christian and hearing his testimony of how Christ pulled him out of the Japanese mob to follow him made quite an impression on Kojima-sensei. And when his family moved from Japan to Philly, they found themselves going to this Korean-American church where they all became Christians. Again, Japan is a hard place. There are cultural and historical factors that make it particularly difficult work. Really, it's impossible work. That is with man, but not with God. And God is building this church even in Japan. Since 1990, Mission to the World has helped uh, plant 19 churches, and there are more in the works in Japan. And with the backdrop of Japan being such a tough place, it makes conversion and church planting all the more beautiful because you know it must be the very work of God. Jesus Christ is wonderfully unique in both his person and message. God is in charge of individuals' salvation as circumstances and schedules are divinely arranged and God opens up people's eyes so they can see. And as we're about to see, Christ is the builder and the keeper of his church. These things make for an unstoppable kingdom of heaven. Here, as we come to verses 18 and 19, and being Reformation Sunday, it is fitting to take a moment to carefully look at the text and consider what is being said and what is not being said. Historically, verses 18 through 19 have been used by many in the Roman Catholic Church as a key passage to prove that they are the only true church and all authority has been given to them directly from Jesus Christ to Peter. The first pope, they claim, and all the successors are the popes of the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Cardinal Gibbon says this, The Catholic Church teaches that the Lord conferred on St. Peter the first place of honor and jurisdiction and the government of his whole church, and that the same spiritual authority has always resided in popes or bishops of Rome as being successor of St. Peter. Consequently, to be true followers of Christ, all Christians, both among the clergy and laity, must be in communion with the See of Rome, where Peter rules in the person of his successor. Does this passage really teach this? No, it does not. And in a moment, we'll see that if you use the good Reformation principle of using Scripture to interpret Scripture, we'll see that this Catholic teaching errs. Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Some have thought that the rock Jesus is building on is Peter's confession, and not Peter himself. Well, there is some truth to that, but we need to be more precise. As one reform scholar points out, the word this makes anything else, any, makes any reference to anything else than the immediately preceding Petros very unnatural. In other words, Jesus is still referring to Peter when he speaks about where he will build his church. But it is not Peter simply as Peter, but Peter who has confessed Jesus Christ who is the foundation of the church. 
the church is built on the man Peter who has received revelation from God, not due to his flesh and bone, strength or character, but because of God's revelation. Peter was a leader and was used as an instrument in powerful ways in the beginning of the book of Acts to advance the church. But it is very important that we understand that though Peter was a leader in the church, he was not the leader. And we can see plainly in in Scripture that the early church, though they held Peter in high regard, did not see him as a pope, nor did Jesus. I'll give you a few places in the New Testament where you can see that. First, in the book of Acts, Peter and John were sent out by the apostles uh, to Samaria. Second, following his meeting with Cornelius, Peter had to give an accounting of what had happened back to the church. Peter was accountable to the church. Third, it was James, not Peter, who presided over the Jerusalem council. If Peter was seen by the early church as a pope, Peter would have presided over this meeting. Fourthly, the apostle Paul rebukes Peter sharply in the second chapter of Galatians about not eating with Gentiles. Paul speaks to Peter as a peer, not as a pope. And finally, it is particularly noteworthy that though Jesus is speaking to Peter, who made the first confession, the promise Jesus makes to Peter about binding and loosing in 1619 is again promised to the 12 disciples just two chapters later in chapter 18, verse 18. This is even in the context of the disciples asking Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That would have been a great time for Jesus to reaffirm that Peter is the leader of the church and carries Pope-like authority if Jesus had meant that in our passage today. But Jesus doesn't mean that. Or Jesus didn't mean that, and he gives the same authority he gave to the twelve to Peter. I'm sorry, he gave the same authority he gave to Peter to the twelve. And as they preached the gospel and administered church discipline, the kingdom would be bound and loosed, open to some, and shut to others. Peter was a highly respected leader of the church, but he was just that. He was a leader, not the leader. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 20 through 22 to bring further clarity to this. It says this, Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice that Paul says, in a very real way, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. And he adds the prophets. But notice he says apostles, plural, not just Peter. It is clear in Ephesians and in our main passage today in Matthew, who the leader of the church is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the chief cornerstone, by far the most important piece of the building. Paul says in Ephesians 2.21 that the whole structure or church is being joined together into a holy temple by the Lord himself. Back to Matthew, Jesus says, I will build my church. He is the builder and the owner of the church. Jesus says, I will build it, and it's my church. I'm thankful for a couple of truths we see here. 
One is that there is clearly a plurality of leaders in the early church. And two, that Jesus Christ is our ultimate leader, the builder and keeper of the church. We fight against real forces of darkness and evil. The Bible is very clear about this. And here Jesus speaks of the powers of hell as having a stronghold with its gates. It's not that the church will not face very real and serious obstacles. It will. North Korea, as most of you know, is a frightful place to be, with gross human rights crimes occurring on a daily basis by a paranoid government who's against anyone who seems to pose a threat to them. And it is an especially dangerous place to be if you're a Christian. But not that long ago, Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, used to be considered the Jerusalem of the East, the center of Christianity in the Far East. But the church was ravaged with the takeover of Kim Il-sung and the communists. And yet, though heavily persecuted, a remnant of about 100,000 North Koreans remains. About a third are in labor camps, but the North Korean Christians remain steadfast in their faith and even sharing it with others. In 2014, Christianity Today has had an article with one pastor working with North Koreans um, saying this. There has always been an underground presence in North Korea. They continue to evangelize and disciple in ways that are distinctive and unique, he says. Even in concentration camps, which are often thought to be places of hopelessness, Christians have for more than a generation been engaging in discipleship and evangelism. They regard it as a part of their mission field. We always want to emphasize that North Korean Christians are not in retreat, but have continued for more than 60 years to advance the gospel with great success. It is the indigenous witness of North Koreans within North Korea that is really proving to see change. Later in the article, he shares this story. In my early meetings with an underground Christian brother, I asked him how we could be praying, and he was so surprised by the question. You pray for us? We pray for you, he exclaimed. So I explained that we have money and the freedom to do anything, and he said, that's the problem. In South Korea and the West, you place so much faith in those things that you don't know what it's like to have nothing. We only have Christ, and we have found him to be sufficient. The Lord will not and cannot be beaten. He will build his church, even in a place like North Korea that is said to be one of the toughest in the world to be a Christian Christ is building this church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world, Jesus says. When the communists swept through China in 1949, Christians feared what would happen to the growing yet fragile church. Missionaries were forced to flee both for their lives and the safety of the churches that they worked with. They were grieved not only for the loss of their life's work that they had already sacrificed so much for, but they were also very concerned for the people that they loved so dearly. One missionary family I know personally had to to split up to flee the country. One parent 
with a couple of kids took a boat down the Yangtze River. The other parent took a train with the other kids and would meet at a port where they would sail to Japan, the first country they could get to to save their lives. When they first realized their lives were at stake and they would have to flee, they weren't even sure how they were going to pay for the transportation because the little money they had was rapidly being devalued due to high inflation. But just a couple days before they were to leave, a letter arrived in the mail from a lady who six weeks earlier, before any of this had gone down and completely unaware of the political events taking place, felt prompted by the Holy Spirit during her prayer time to put $50 in the mail and mail it to these missionaries. Now, with this $50, they had enough money to pay for the boat to Japan. This is the story of the Young family, pioneer Presbyterian missionaries to our city of Nagoya. At first, they were just fleeing for their lives, but they decided to stay in Japan. And so John Young and his family decided to stay and minister in Japan. And in the years that followed, they started holding Bible studies on the tiger skin rug in the home of their first convert. And in the years followed, planted a church. The father, John Young, helped to start our denomination, the Presbyterian Church of Japan, and his son, Bruce Young, was our team's first team leader. This was the beginning of our work in Nagoya, Japan. The fleeing of communists in China gave birth to the work in Nagoya, Japan. All the while, Christians were fearful that the church in China would collapse under the heavy persecution of the communists. And so great efforts were used to lift up the nation of China with prayer. And as some of you might know, God worked through those prayers to actually have the church boom in China, even in spite of the absence of missionaries. It's a sure deal. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is a sure investment in your prayers, time, talents, money, and even lives, whether that's here in America or to the other most parts of the earth. Some individual projects will not go as we had hoped, but Christ will build his church and will not fail. We've read the end of the story in Revelation, and we know that some from every tribe and tongue will worship the Lamb. We serve a beautiful Savior. He is unique in person and message, and he is in charge of our individual salvation as he opens up hearts to the gospel. And he is both the leader, the builder, and the keeper of the church. So consequently, the kingdom of heaven is unstoppable. Not only should we be in awe of how amazing our Savior is and how he draws people to himself and uses them as living stones to build his church, but since Christ is the builder and keeper of the church, let us not be hindered or discouraged in being a part of this great endeavor that we're called to, laboring with him as he builds his church. Let's pray. Father God, we're so um, thankful that you have clearly showed us um, who you are in in relationship to your church. And God, we're thankful that you um, have not only uh, called us to be your children and adopted us, 
um, through the forgiveness of sins. But, God, we also are so thankful that you've called us and let us be a part of the Great Commission and let us be a part of the church. We're thankful for that, and we recognize it as a great privilege. And, God, we are in awe of, of you and the way that you build and keep your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.